Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Now this morning, we are beginning a series of messages that are leading up to Easter Sunday, which is just four weeks away from today, which is really three Sundays away, not including this Sunday. So in, in four weeks, we are going to uh, gather together and we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus for our sins. But on the way to the cross, on the way to the grave and the resurrection, Jesus took many roads. And the roads that Jesus took, the roads he walked on, the roads he rode through, they point to the purpose of his coming to earth, the purpose of his journey, but they also help us appreciate the significance of the cross and the resurrection. Now, the first road that Jesus took on his way to the cross and the resurrection was the road into Jerusalem on what has been come to be known as Palm Sunday. I am several weeks early talking about Palm Sunday, but there's a lot of roads I want to get through, and so we're starting with this one. Uh, now, just like every passage that we look at, of course, uh, you know I like uh, to exegete a, a, a passage in expository preaching and Occasionally we'll do topical messages, you know, during Christmas we'll do topical. Right now, Easter is a topical sermon series, but I always want us to see the context of whatever passage we're looking at. Because context, when you're looking at Scripture, when you're studying the Bible, context is king. If you don't have the right context, you're going to take it out of context and use the Scripture incorrectly. And that's how... False teachings begin. That's how uh, false religions begin. So we always got to look at the context. What is happening? What happened beforehand? What happened after? What? Who's the audience that Jesus is talking to? Because yes, the Bible is a living book, and the Word of God applies to us today. But just as much as it applied to those who were living while it was written. But we got to kind of look. Okay, who? What's the audience he's looking at? What's he trying to explain to them? What's he trying to relate to them? And how does it apply? To me, So we want to look at the context of what's happening. So in Luke 19, uh, Jesus, at the ch- passage we're going to look at this morning, he is entering Jerusalem. Now he knows why he's coming there. He knows this is his final journey into Jerusalem, that he is going to Jerusalem during this time. He chose this time during the Passover week or the Holy Week of the Jews to come into Jerusalem because he knew that during this time he had to uh, be falsely accused, he had to be arrested, he had to be scourged and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and crucified during the Feast of Passover because, of course, we understand the Passover uh, celebration was a time that the Jews would take time to remember what God had done for them when he freed them from slavery in Egypt. How he sent the, the nine plagues to Egypt to kind of break the heart of Pharaoh and that didn't work. He sent the tenth plague, the plague of the death angel, where the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and the firstborn in every household uh, was killed unless they had sacrificed a perfect lamb and put the blood on the uh, doorpost, and then the, the death angel would pass over that house. And so every year during the Passover celebration, 
Jews from all over the, the area, all over the world, different countries would come back to Jerusalem because this was also the time they had the Day of Atonement where they would sacrifice a lamb in the temple to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel for the year, kind of cover the sins for the, for the year. But Jesus, as John the Baptist said, he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So it is significant that he is sacrificing himself during this Passover time. And so he is entering Jerusalem for the last time. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be uh, tortured and ridiculed and beaten. And he knows he's going to die on the cross. He knows he's going to be buried. And three days later, he knows he's going to rise again. So this isn't a surprise to Jesus. Everything that happens, he knows that it is going to happen. But he also knows it has to happen. And if you remember the three and a half years he was with his apostles... He told them exactly what was going to happen. Sometimes he used metaphors. Sometimes he used uh, parables. But several times he looked them dead in the eye and was like, i got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer and die, but I'm going to rise again three days later. And they still didn't didn't get it. Uh, these, These apostles were kind of dense sometimes. So he knows what's coming. He's trying to prepare them for what's coming, but he still knows that they're not really set for what's coming. But before he goes to Jerusalem, he stops in the city of Jericho. Now, he's been there several times. Uh, but in this time, as he's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, we get the story of the conversion of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So we get the, the, the conversion of Zacchaeus. And it's in this, this story in Luke chapter 19, where he says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so after this interaction, after this salvation story with Zacchaeus, he leaves Jericho heading to Jerusalem. Now, from Jericho to Jerusalem was a 14-mile walk. It was also uh, up the mountains where he would have to ascend 3,300 feet. So it's a long walk up a steep hill. And it would have taken him about eight to nine hours of walking to complete this journey. And on the way to Jerusalem, he's walking with his apostles. He's got some other uh, followers with him. But he, he tells them a parable. And he tells them the parable of the ten talents or the ten pounds. And here's a, a brief summation of the parable he tells in Luke chapter 19. That there's a, a ruler who is going on a far journey. And as he leaves, <clears throat> he picks three of his servants to kind of be in charge of his his assets while he's there, and he gives each of them ten pounds or ten talents. He gives them a certain amount of money. He gives them all the same amount and says, take care of this while I'm gone, and when I come back, we'll, we'll see what happens. So he goes on a long journey, and he comes back, and he brings the first servant in, and the first servant's like, hey, you gave me ten pounds, I earned you ten more, and he rewards him and praises him. Then the second one comes in and says, you gave me ten talents or ten pounds, and I, I earned you five more, and he rejoices and praises him. Then the third guy comes in, and the third guy says, I knew that you were uh, a hard man. I knew that if I lost your money... You would be very angry with me. So I buried it. You gave me 10, I gave, I'm going to give you 10 back. Now the master is very angry. He says, you knew I was a hard man. 
You should have at least put it in the bank and earned me some interest. And so instead of this, he, he punishes him. And the story is a kind of a, an interesting story. But Jesus, I want you to look at verse number 11 in chapter uh, number uh, 19, because this is why Jesus uh, told this story. It says, and he said, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. <clears throat> Sorry. So again, the, the apostles here, they're expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem and immediately set up his kingdom to kind of overthrow the Roman government, to sit on the throne of David as he has prophesied and kind of rule and reign in Jerusalem. They're expecting his kingdom to come right now. But he's, he's telling them, no, 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 I'm the master who's going on a far journey. I will come back, but you don't know when. I don't know when. And so he's trying to remind them of what's going to happen. See, he knew what was coming as he entered Jerusalem and he wanted to remind them that now wasn't the time for him to set up his kingdom. So he's going to Jerusalem, knowing what will happen, and wanting to calm his disciples. So let's look over in, in verse number 28. <coughs> Sorry. At the beginning of what is known as the triumphal entry. <coughs> Luke 19, verse number 28. And when he had thus spoken, again, he spoke in the parable, um, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage, which is, is right outside of Jerusalem, it's, it's, it's on the Mount of Olives, or on the ascent on the Mount of Olives, kind of to the, if you're coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, when you get to the Mount of Olives, there's two ways you can take, and he takes the way through uh, Bethpage and Bethany, and so he's kind of going around the Mount of Olives, instead of going right over top uh, into Jerusalem, uh, when he came to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village over against you, in the which at your, your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat, loose him and bring him hither. So the village you're going to is in Bethpage. He, he's not getting this, this colt and, you know, what is a colt? It's a donkey. Uh, he's not getting this donkey from Jerusalem. He's getting it from the village of Bethpage right outside Jerusalem. Uh, and if any man asks you, <coughs> why do you loose him? Thus say, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. And they entered and sent, and, uh, and they that were sent went their way and found even as they had said unto him. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, why you loose you the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and cast their garments upon the colt. And they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the scene that we're looking at here is very significant and it has some some cultural uh, implications that people of this time would understand and would recognize. Now in this time, when a Roman army would go out and they would conquer a land or conquer a village or conquer a kingdom, when they came back to Rome, the conquering general would ride in front of the army on a great white horse. 
a beautiful white stallion, and behind him would be all of his uh, other commanders, and then their soldiers. And at the very end of that, they would have all the spoils of war. They would have chariots filled with treasure. A lot of times they would have elephants carrying all this conquered treasure. And then behind all that, they would have the the prisoners of war that were that were important people, generals from the uh, opposing army, kings from the opposing army. And so it was it was what was known as the march of victory. Uh, now, these soldiers, these generals, they were not royalty. But for a day, they were treated like royalty. As they came back into Rome, conquering uh, heroes with all the spoils of war with them, the people of Rome would line the streets entering in, and they would sing praises to them. They would rejoice over them. A lot of times they would throw their garments down for the, the horse to walk on, and they would treat them like a, a king for the day because they were coming home victorious. Now, Jesus is putting on a similar demonstration. But there's some very important differences. He's not coming with any treasure behind him because he is the treasure. He's the treasure that every man needs. Uh, he doesn't have any captives with him because he came to free the captives. Also, he's not riding on a white horse. He's riding on a donkey. Any of y'all ever ridden a donkey? I've ridden a donkey. Nobody else has ridden a donkey but me. Wow. I surely thought Danny Wade would have ridden a donkey once in a while. If you ever ridden a donkey, how many of y'all have ridden a horse? Okay, more horse rides. I've ridden a horse. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and you kind of sit really high up on a horse. You get on a donkey, it's a vastly different experience. First of all, donkeys usually don't like being ridden. And so when we would ride the donkey in the field next to our house, we would get on, and as soon as we got on, he would just take off, and you're holding on for dear life to this donkey. Uh, and so it's not a, it's not a regal, grand experience. You know, he's not riding in on this majestic white horse. He's coming in on a donkey. Now, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. It's not because there wasn't any horses available. He is fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and cry aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and able to deliver. He is humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the offspring of a donkey. So Jesus... As he enters Jerusalem riding this donkey, he is declaring that he is the true king that brings victory. He is declaring that he is the one who has true authority over everything. He has authority over death and sickness. And he's proved that through his, his ministry on earth as he heals the sick and he raises the dead. Of course, we know he rose Lazarus from the dead. He also rose the, the centurion's sick daughter. He rose her from the dead. So he has proven throughout his ministry, I have conquered sickness. I have conquered death. He shows that he has authority over demons because he cast out demons with the word. He has authority over nature as he calms the storms with just one word. And he has, he has authority over sins because he's declared, I can forgive sins. So he is declaring that he has authority over every aspect of life. Now, that's not a new revelation. We've seen this throughout Scripture. 
When Gabriel comes to Mary and he tells her that she's going to bring forth the Messiah, he says, listen, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Then, of course, he comes to Joseph in a vision because Joseph's a good man. He doesn't want to uh, punish or humiliate Mary, but I mean, she comes to him and she says, hey, Joseph, I know we're engaged and we've never been together intimately like man and wife, but I'm pregnant. But don't worry, I'm not pregnant from another guy. I'm pregnant from the Holy Ghost. You know, I'm, I'm the virgin and Isaiah. And Joseph, you know, understandably was like, sure, whatever. I've heard some good excuses, Mary, but that's a, that's the, that's a good one. You're the virgin who's going to bring forth the Messiah. So he, he doesn't want to bury her anymore. He doesn't want to, but he doesn't want to punish her because he loves her and he's a good man. And so the angel comes to him in his dream and says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he is entering as a conquering king. But he's not coming to conquer the way that the people expected him to. Now, his coming to Jerusalem and the, the praise that he receives, it is recorded in all four Gospels. We're going to look at it in Luke chapter 19 this morning. As we look at this scene, I want to see three, I want to show us three things that this scene shows us Jesus requires if we're going to be a follower of his. First thing Jesus requires is Jesus requires sacrifice. I want you to look back at uh, chapter 19, verse number 33. <clears throat> and as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said to them, Why do you loose the colt? Now, who questioned the apostles, when they came and untied this young donkey. Who questioned them? Who? The owners. Plural. It's more than one. Now, donkeys at this time were kind of a luxury. Most people walked, especially, I mean, we would say they walked short distances, but here's Jesus walking 14 miles up a mountain. And to me... That's not a short distance. That's not a quick stroll. To me, that's a, yeah, you better call a bus or an Uber or something. I ain't walking 300, 3,000 feet uphill for 14 miles. It ain't going to happen. I'm going to make it one mile and die of a heart attack. But so people were used to walking then, and they were healthier because they didn't have bacon, you know, pray for them. Uh, but so, you know, a short distance, like 14 miles, uh, was, was pretty common for people to walk. And so the, this donkey, he had at least two Owners. And again, they weren't something everyone had. They were used as transportation. They were considered a luxury. Not a, not a horse, because horses were reserved for royalty or reserved for uh, people of Roman heritage. Israelites didn't get horses. They got donkeys. So they freely and willingly let this animal go. Think about it. You're at home, you hear something going on outside, you walk outside and there's two dudes trying to break into your car and hotwire it. And you just, you're like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, the Lord needs it. All right. How many of y'all would do that? 
I wouldn't. I'm like, oh, the Lord needs it. Well, let me tell you what you need. You know, get out of my car. Uh, or, you know, if it's April's van, yeah, let me get you the keys, make it easier to steal. I'm going to report this stolen, by the way, because I hate that thing and I want insurance on it. But, you know, we, most of us wouldn't willingly just some strange guy we've never seen comes up, tries to take something of ours, and when we ask him, like, oh, uh, you know, the Lord needs it. Oh, okay, feel free. But that's exactly what these owners did. They didn't, they didn't question it at all. Now, that took sacrifice. That took faith. Because if you read all four Gospels, in none of them is there a conversation where the owners say, okay, but are we going to get it back? When are you going to return it? Are you going to get it a, get a full tank of gas before you bring it back? You know, I, I, when, when are we getting this donkey back? Never at any, in any gospel do they ask, when are we going to get it back? Are we going to get it back? They just say, yeah, sure. The Lord needs it. The Lord can have it. So they, 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 they give this transport, they give this donkey this, this valuable possession. They freely give it to Jesus with no idea if they're ever going to get it back. That is sacrifice. See, every single one of us have something that God needs. We have a donkey that God is asking us to give up for His glory so that He can be praised. We all have something that if given to Jesus freely can move the message of the gospel forward. John uh, Henry Jollett, he said this. He says, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. See, it's not sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. What about, what about the sacrifice of the apostles? You know, because the apostles had to make a sacrifice too. Again, these men, the apostles of Jesus, they've already left everything for him. Three and a half years ago, they, they left their houses, they left their jobs, they left their families, they left everything to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus tells two of them, hey, I want you to go into that little village there, you're going to find a donkey tied up somewhere, just bring it to me, and if someone asks what's going on, just tell them Jesus needs it. You, you know what Jesus, Jesus asked them to do? Go steal me a donkey. Now, Theft was a serious crime. It wasn't something to be taken lightly. Now, I did a lot of research on this because, you know, in some of the Gospels, when it talks about the men hanging next to Jesus, they're called thieves. Theft was not a capital offense. Not in Jewish uh, times, uh, Jewish law, or in the Roman. So if you stole someone, you weren't put to death. When it talks about the thieves on the cross, it really is translated better rebels. They were rebels against the Roman government, and the Roman government wouldn't kill you for being a thief, but if you tried to cause trouble for them, they'd do it in a heartbeat. So, But still, theft was a very serious crime. If you were caught for theft, even if you're taking the donkey away and they catch you and you don't actually get the donkey, you have to pay them back seven times the value of whatever it is you took. And if you can't pay it back, now you're their slave. So Jesus is asking them, hey, go into this village, don't ask permission. He didn't say, you're going to see a colt tied up, and when you do, find out who the owners are and ask them if you can borrow it. No, he just says, you're going to find a colt, bring it to me. And if anyone asks, just say, the Lord needs it. 
So that's a, a pretty bold request that he's asking them to. But on faith, they go to find the donkey. Of course, they find it where, they, where Jesus said it would be. And they, they take it with the risk of looking like thieves. See, they had to be, have faith and be willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. And they did. During the reign of King William III of Prussia, uh, the government was running out of money because there was a lot of wars going on. He was trying to expand his kingdom. And <clears throat> through the wars and the battles, they, they're, this, the, 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 the coffers were empty. The government was, was broke. And so he needed something, some way to make money. And so he uh, passed a decree. And it wasn't a requirement, but he asked all the women of the country to willingly give up their jewelry, give up their silver and their gold jewelry. And if they would bring it to a government uh, office and willingly give up their gold and silver jewelry, they would get in return an iron pendant. Now, gold and silver are worth a lot. Iron ain't. And gold and silver are pretty. Iron's not. So you're willingly giving up your gold and silver necklaces and bracelets and earrings and, and ring. You're willingly giving up all your beautiful jewelry for a, a piece of iron. Now, it, the women responded so incredibly to this that it actually became unfashionable to wear gold and silver. Because people would see you as selfish. But if they saw you walking around with that iron pendant, they knew that you had sacrificed for the kingdom. You had given what was needed for the king. And so it became a, a status symbol to have that iron and not have gold and silver. So what the king needs, we have to be willing to let go of. What he asks us to do, we should be willing to do it. As Jesus received, you know, Jesus requires sacrifice. And as he received the colt, as he received this donkey, they, they threw their, their cloaks on it. And he gets on and starts riding in Jerusalem. And people start praising him. Which is the number two. The second thing Jesus requires is Jesus requires praise. Look at verse number 36. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began rejoicing and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in earth, uh, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these, these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, the road that Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem on, it's a, it's a dusty dirt road in a desert region. It's, it's hot. It's dusty. I mean, the, the animals going through, but the crowds of people are not just walking with Jesus, but coming out of Jerusalem to praise Jesus and worship him as the coming Messiah. So it's, it's hot. It's dusty, it's dirty, but despite all of that, the people are taking off their coats 
and laying them on the dirty, dusty ground for the donkey to walk on as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Again, it's, it's similar to what the Roman generals uh, experienced as they would come back to Rome after a great victory. And the crowd, they begin praising him for everything they had seen him do. Other Gospels say that they are calling out and calling him Hosanna. The, the, the word, the, the name Hosanna, literally means one that saves. It's a, it's a term of adoration. It's a term of praise for God. And so they are praising him for what he had done, but they're also praising him for what they expect him to do. Because again, they expect him to come in and set up his kingdom and overthrow Caesar and rule and reign on the, the throne of David. And so they expected him to set up his kingdom right then and there, even though he had told them time and time and time again that before his kingdom could be set up, he had to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, die, and rise again for the kingdom to come. See, Jesus' purpose <coughs> was greater that they could have ever, ever imagined. God was wrapped in humanity right in front of them. Salvation was about to become available to everyone in the world, but they were focused on the Roman Empire. See, we have no excuses for not praising Him for who He is. We know what happens in a few days. We know that in just a few days, he's going to be arrested and put on trial and severely beaten and battered. And we know he's going to be hung on a cross. And we know he's going to hang there and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And we know he's going to give up the ghost and they're going to puncture his side. And we know that he's going to go to hell and pay for our sins and take his blood to the mercy seat of heaven and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of heaven and redeem us. We know He's going to make salvation available to all the world. So we have no excuse for not praising Him for what He's done. We know He conquered death. We know, yes, He died, but three days later He rose again. We know He conquered hell and the grave for us. We know He gave mercy and grace to us. We know that we are now the children of God, that we have received His righteousness, that He took our sin. We have no excuse not to praise Him. Look at what Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 40. They say, silence the crowd. Tell them to stop praising you. Tell them to stop calling you the Messiah. And look what he says again in verse 40. I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. You know what he's saying? I deserve praise and I will receive praise. If these people don't do it, the rocks are going to do it because I deserve praise. Jesus not only deserves praise, but he will, he will get praise. In Philippians 2.10, the Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every tongue is going to praise Jesus and call him the Messiah. 
Here's the thing. Even Satan one day is going to bow his knee before King Jesus and praise him for who he is. Jesus will receive praise. Even those that are cast into hell will praise him. So as God's children, we should praise him now. Praise him for what he's done for us through the cross. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's given us salvation. He's given us redemption. He's adopted us in the family of God so we can praise him for that. But also praise him for everything he's provided for us. For how much he's blessed us. Look, every one of us needs to take some time, and I'm not talking about today or or once a week. I'm saying every single day. Take some time and think about what God's done for you in your life. How many of y'all are on your way to heaven right now? If you were to die right now, you'd be in heaven. You know who you praise for that? Jesus. How many of y'all are not in the hospital gasping for breath right now? Please, everyone, get their hands up. All right. You know who you praise for that? Fauci. No, Jesus. How many of y'all are in America where you can freely go to church and worship God without fear of being persecuted or punished or killed, unlike people in North Korea. How many of y'all are like that today? You know who you praise for that? Jesus. He has done so much for us. He's given us strength. He's given us grace. He's given us mercy. He's given us the very word of God. That we can look and see how much he loves us and what he's done for us. And as his children, we should eagerly... Look, I don't want a rock to outpraise me for what God's done for me. You know what God did for a rock? Well, he made it. But that's it. It's a rock. I'm not going to let a rock outdo me in praising God. Jesus demands praise. Third thing we see, following Jesus requires, Jesus requires weeping. I want you to look at verse number 41. And when he was come near and beheld the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou hast known even thou at least in this day, thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round about, and keep thee in, in on every side, and he shall lay thee even to the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave uh, in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now in the middle of this incredible scene, I mean again, put yourself there. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He knows that the, 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 the gift of salvation is about to be paid and everyone's available. He knows that finally he's going to conquer death, hell, and the grave and make salvation available to everyone and defeat Satan once and for all. He knows what's coming. And he's got the whole city of Jerusalem praising him and rejoicing and calling him Hosanna. And in the middle of that, he starts to weep. He starts to cry. Why? He's heartbroken over what's happening. See, because he knows the people who are right now saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you are God, you are the Messiah, you are the chosen one. He knows that in just a few days, those same people are going to be crying, 
crucify him. We don't want him. We don't want the guy we called Hosanna. We want a murderer to be released. Kill that guy. He knows what's coming. Now, he also knows what's coming for Jerusalem. This, this, where he talks about Jerusalem being torn down, he knows that in about 40 years, Titus is going to come in, King Titus from Rome, and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. That if you read some Jewish historians from the day, that over a million Jews are going to be slaughtered when he comes in and destroys the temple, destroys everything. He knows what's coming to Jerusalem, but more than he's thinking, oh man, the city's going to be destroyed, he knows these people who are praising me now, they're going to reject me. And it's not just they're going to turn on me, they're going to reject me and they're going to choose to go to hell instead of accepting my gift of salvation. See, God doesn't want anyone to perish. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient with us, because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, Jesus, the, the Pharisees that are mocking him and saying, tell your disciples to shut up, he wants them to get saved. The Roman soldiers in a few days are going to take a cat of nine tails and scourge him and rip his flesh from his body. He wants them to get saved. The Roman soldiers that are going to put the crown of thorns on his head and mock him and beat him and spit on him. He wants them to get saved. The Jews that are going to mock him as he's hung on the cross and say, hey, you saved others, save yourself. He wants them to get saved. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He is dying for the sins of the entire world. He knows what he's about to endure for the salvation of those that will reject him. He knows the price of salvation will be paid through his death, burial, and resurrection. But those that see it, those that hear about it throughout history, We'll still reject it. We'll still reject the free gift of salvation. And he knows the fate of those that will reject him. He knows the fate of Jerusalem because of their rejection. So how can he rejoice when he knows what's coming? When he knows how people will suffer for eternity? Because they refuse to accept his gift of salvation. So many have been praising him, have been waiting for the Messiah, have been praying for him to come, and now he's there, he walked among them, he healed them, he taught them, he loved them, and his love for them caused him to weep for them. He is weeping for those that won't believe, that will reject him. As his messengers, the lost, the lost in our world should cause us to weep for them. Should cause us to mourn for them. Because we know if they die without Christ, there's no second chance. You know, there's no, there's no you're in hell for a hundred years and then God will give you a chance to, re to repent. No, no, no. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So when we see the lost around us, and look, 
I know we are in a, we are in the Bible Belt in in Roanoke. Now it's not much of a Bible, but it's, it's, it's slip, slipping. But we think, man, we're in we're in the, we're in we're in South. We're in Roanoke. We're in the Bible Belt. Everybody's a believer. No, they're not. Did you know there are missionaries from the Philippines coming to America to preach the gospel to Americans? You know why? Because America is becoming one of the largest mission fields in the world. Because we've rejected him. And we can say, oh, everybody's... No, and when we look at the state... And look, I know we looked at our country, and look, our country is a hot mess. It's, it's bad. But you know what? I'm not going to complain about who the president is or the senators or the governor. You know, because let's be honest, in the grand scheme of eternity... Who sits in the Oval Office does not matter. They're not going to change the country. You know what should cause us to weep in our country? Not the price of gas, though it does. What should cause us to weep in our country is the state of the hearts of those in our, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in, in our homes, who have rejected or never even heard the gospel. Weep. For their eternity. His messengers, we should mourn them. But it should cause us more to just sit around and weep and say, Oh, I'm so sad that they're, they're not accepting. It should cause us to get busy and start witnessing to them. To share the gospel and to share the love of Christ with everyone we can. To try to reach them with the gospel. You know, it isn't up to us to save them. But it's up to us to share with them. It's up to us to give them the truth of the gospel, to share salvation with them and to be heartbroken over those that refuse to accept it or those who have never heard it. So as we begin to celebrate Easter, we see Jesus coming down the road to Jerusalem. It's an incredible scene. It's a scene that had been prophesied throughout Scripture. This day that we see right here is the beginning of the events that are going to lead to his death, burial, and resurrection. It is the beginning of the events that are going to bring salvation to the entire world. So as we think about this day and what's happening on this day as Jesus enters Jerusalem, let's be willing to sacrifice for him. Whatever he asks us to give, let's give it. Wherever he asks us to go, let's go. Whatever he asks us to do, let's be willing to do it. But let's also praise him for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in our lives. And then let's weep over those that haven't heard and give of ourselves to get the gospel to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.